Well, what we're going to do today is get started with the 11th Psalm. Let's see what that says. This is uh, the 11th Psalm to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Oh, glorious heavenly Father, here we are in your presence, and we would ask that you would uh, mold our hearts to be conformed to the image of your Son, our Lord and Savior. We know that in us is no righteousness, and that in us is a heart which is desperately wicked. But because of Christ, you have uh, regenerated us, you've brought us to spiritual life, and you've set us on a path which can bring us to a state where we're acceptable in your sight. And only because of Jesus, this is the case. And we thank you for that. Please sanctify us, help us grow in our knowledge of you until that glorious day when you come and we're uh, in your presence for all of eternity. And Lord, here we are gathered as a people. We have uh, people of uh, different ages here and people with different afflictions in their bodies. And I would ask that you would help them to be comfortable during this service. And uh, we thank you for the uh, overcast sky today, which will certainly keep the heat down. And uh, we praise you for every good blessing you've given us in the week behind. And uh, we look forward in anticipation to wonderful things from your open hand of grace in the week that's coming. Lord God, please do allow this service to be uh, glorifying to you and uh, edifying to the people here. And may they hear the, uh, the result of what chapter 34 uh, is pointing to in the book of Genesis. And uh, uh, may they pay heed to it and understand that you have given us this for a specific reason and help us to apply it to our lives. In all things, help us just to remember that you are gracious, you're loving, and you're merciful. If we just simply turn our eyes, direct them to your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus. And so it's in his name we do pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Avenue, Superior Avenue. The uh, building is actually being worked on. We finally got the uh, power cut this past week, and uh, the roof was put on the back of the building. It doesn't flood anymore. Uh, if I had told you this, it flooded every time it rained, and it took hours for us to clean it out. On my birthday last week, um, I was there twice. I had to go in the afternoon and then again at night to vacuum it out. So I spent all my time after doing the uh, video just vacuuming out a, a wet building. But uh, anyway, uh, that roof is done as of this week, and then uh, I got the uh, old tent off of the windows, and they're shiny and new, and uh, we got some other things done yesterday. I patched some concrete, and uh, uh, the contractor is moving forward with things. So I want you to not lose heart that we actually are going to move into this building eventually, unless the Lord comes first. It's been a long haul. My wife was sitting here talking about it before the uh, service, and it's been almost six months since we bought the thing thinking we'd be moved in in just a month or two, and uh, the Lord had other plans. Um, baptism, I think everybody here has heard this about 50 times, but if you do want to be baptized uh, according to the Bible, which means uh, after accepting Jesus as Lord, got the water there, and we can go do that today or any day. And um, let's see here. Today will be our 86th Genesis sermon, and uh, uh, so I would... Uh, uh, just uh, ask that you uh, pay attention in particular to today's uh, sermon. You've heard most of what this uh, chapter details, but today I'll give you the explanation of it. And uh, it's something that's very, very important. And I'll explain that again in just a couple minutes. I have um, something uh, uh, Darla here has done, some prayer request forms. And we'll have those out when the church is actually open. But last week, somebody filled out a prayer request form, and I'm not going to give names unless it specifically says, please include my name. This is from last week, and uh, we're waiting to hear the results of uh, this prayer request. But I, I want you to know that somebody's son uh, is very sick, sick uh, with his liver, and uh, this week he went to have a biopsy, and so there were prayers for that to come out uh, one way or another, uh, you know, to the Lord's glory, but uh, hopefully that there would be no problem in the biopsy. Uh, we have not heard yet. 
but I, I'd ask you to keep that in prayer. And uh, as prayer requests come in, I'm not always going to do it w during the service when the video is going, but uh, I just want to let you know that uh, anytime you need prayer, you can email me, uh, you can fill one of these out, and then once we have something established at the church, other people can join in a prayer committee, and that would be something really wonderful. Uh, Paul speaks of the prayers of the many as being effective, and so when more voices are lifted up to the Lord, he certainly responds in a different way than if nobody lifts them up. So uh, uh, there you go on prayer, and um, uh, I'm not going to do a New Testament reading. As I said, uh, we're not going to do any New Testament readings until we move into the building, and at that time it'll be part of a Bible study, not as a part of what we do here during the service. And so uh, uh, it's just the summertime is hot. We have the possibility of rain, etc. And so I'm just going to skip that. We're going to go right into the 12th Psalm. And then after that, we'll uh, get into the service. Let's see here. Psalm number 12. This is to the chief musician on an eight-string harp, which would be known as a kinor in um, uh, Hebrew. And a kinor, I've said this in a sermon some time ago, but I'll remind you, it's uh, where the word Kinneret comes from, and Kinneret is the Hebrew name of the Sea of Galilee. If you look at the Sea of Galilee from above, it looks like the shape of one of these ancient Kinnors. And so uh, you think of a harp, think of the Sea of Galilee, think of the sweet music of the Lord as he spoke to the people around that sea, and uh, maybe you'll have a mental picture to help you uh, remember that in the future. All right, Psalm number 12, to the chief musician on an eight-string harp, a Psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Sounds like the rapture to me. They speak idly, every one with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Who has said with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy. Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Um, I want to read you one portion of that again. Uh, it says, speaking of God's word, your words, O Lord, you shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them, for them from this generation forever. The Lord's word is something that is unchanging. It is fixed and it is firm. I was uh, typing something for a devotional, which will come out in about six days from now, today. And um, one of the things that we need to remember is that we don't pick and choose out of God's word what we're going to obey and what we're not going to obey. There is a place for certain things within God's word, as we're going to see in the sermon today. But those things that apply to us, we cannot just arbitrarily pull out and say, I'm not going to do this or I disagree with this without compromising the entire word. That's just the way God's word works. Uh, I'm going to give you an example. It's something I bring up quite often and it offends a lot of people and it doesn't bother me at all. This is God's word. I didn't write it. Um, the Bible says that uh, uh, women are not to teach or have authority over men. And that's concerning the Bible and spiritual matters. And in today's world, we have Joyce Myers who publishes stuff and it goes out all over the world and people post it on Facebook and it's a violation of God's word. Whether you like Joyce Myers or not is irrelevant. Are you obedient to the Lord? That is the, the question for you. Now, I'm not saying that Joyce Myers can't teach women. The Bible says nothing about that. But it says that she's not to teach or have authority over men. And there in her congregation, as a supposed pastor, she has people there. Um, so... That's just one example of many, many things in the Bible that we have to take to heart. And there's a reason why God said these things. It's not that he doesn't like Gentiles and he likes Jews, and it's not that he doesn't like women and he likes men. There is a reason why God does things. And when we try to shrug that off, we only find ourselves harmed. Anyway, there you go. A little something for you to think about today. And uh, we'll go ahead and get into right now this day in history. Today is the 25th of August. And on this day in 1718, hundreds of colonists from France arrived in Louisiana, some settled in present-day New Orleans. Uh, as you may or may not know, America, uh, when it was founded, was the 13 colonies, and it was kind of like about a third the size of the U.S., we'll say. And then you had what belonged to the French, and it was about comparable in size to what the, the British owned. Eventually, uh, America bought the 
through the Louisiana Purchase, all of the French land, and in essence, they doubled the size of the United States in a single moment. Uh, but there's a huge French influence in that particular area, and particularly down in the south, uh, Louisiana, etc. But uh, their influence didn't really carry over into the government itself. That's something more you'll see up in France. You know, they've got Quebec and all that. But uh, it was uh, that day in 1718 that that occurred. 1814, the U.S. Library of Congress was destroyed by British forces. I never knew that. That was during the War of 1812. Uh, I didn't realize that was something they did, but uh, something that happens throughout history is uh, like the, in Alexandria, the uh, great library there was destroyed, and you'll hear about this happening in history, is that invading armies come in and they destroy uh, these type of places. And the reason why is because that's where ideas come from. Uh, Hitler wanted books banned, and uh, he uh, burnt all of the books in the area, and uh, throughout history people have taken the Bible and tried to do away with it. Roman emperor said it won't exist in a year, and here it exists when they've been gone for thousands of years. Um, but this is what we do, is we try to get people to not think. We try to take away the source of their ideas. And I would submit that even the Internet has become kind of like that in a way, because you, we've gone from uh, the Internet started with great concepts of uh, people typing uh, uh, large thought-provoking ideas and submitting sermons from years past on websites. And we saw that... Uh, uh, for many years, and then all of a sudden in comes Facebook. And Facebook started out with people actually making posts. They'd type things, and it would get posted on there, and people would comment on those posts. And eventually it got down into shorter and shorter posts, and very few people make notes at all on Facebook anymore. It's mostly just a post with a picture, and it's, it's almost a brain-dead type of thing. And uh, uh, Twitter has uh, added to that by maximizing you what you can say into about 170 words or whatever it is 170 characters anyway you know what I'm saying I don't really follow Twitter but uh, I was reading something yesterday that like 82% of all things on Twitter are negative I hate this person or this person is you know blah 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 and that is something that has been introduced into our society which is actually dumbing us down so I would I'd equate it right here to what the British did to the uh, Library of Congress uh, trying to get rid of ideas but, you know, that could just be a, a misrepresentation of, by me. But I, that's how I see it. Um, 1875 on this day, Captain Matthew Webb swam from Dover, England to Calais, France. He was the first person to swim across the English Channel. And it took him, get this, 22 hours to swim across the English Channel. And the worst part for this poor guy is when he arrived, he forgot his passport and they made him swim back to get it and then come back into France. So there you go. Poor guy. Uh, that's not true. <laughs> Any, anyway, um, 1916, the uh, National Park Service was established as a part of the uh, Department of the Interior. And I think that was a good thing. You know, we have these parks that are being set aside for the use by Americans. And, uh, of course, you need somebody to monitor that and to make sure things are done right. But as with all things government, it has turned into a real debacle. Like, you know, everything that the government gets its hands into eventually degrades into something that is just wrong. But uh, it was a good start, and uh, the National Park Service is probably the least, um, you know, government type of thing we have, even though, you know, I'm sure they use this for our political agenda as much as any other part of the government. Um, 1939, big stuff here. The movie The Wizard of Oz opened around the United States and uh, set standards of all kinds. And, uh, you know, just kind of an interesting movie. It was in color, uh, Technicolor, I think. It may, may have been Panavision, but I think it was Technicolor. And uh, just, you know, good memories of growing up watching that. You've got the guy hiding behind the uh, curtain. He's supposed to be this big, angry guy, and instead he's just a peevish little guy behind the curtain. And I think we can all learn a less life lesson from that. Um, 1941. Soviet and British troops invaded Iran. This was about before we entered World War II, but uh, this was in reaction to the Shah's refusal to reduce the number of German residents. And then within four days, the Soviet Union and England controlled Iran. So uh, kind of setting up the way things were going in the world. If you know, the uh, Islamic presence in Iran was pretty much aligned with the Germans, and they had the same goal, which was to... Uh, get rid of the Jews, and this is something that has not ended in Iran to this day. They've always said, you know, if we get a bomb in uh, the morning, it'll be detonated over Tel, Tel Aviv in the evening. They are adamant on the destruction of the Jewish people and the Jewish nation. But uh, 
history was moving forward at this time. Eventually, uh, a shawl was put in place. He was uh, friendly to the U.S. He was kicked out when the Ayatollah moved in back in the uh, early 80s, maybe late 70s, and uh, the world marches on. Here we go. Things are being set up for the end times. 1941, which is the same day this is happening in America, uh, U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt signed the bill appropriating funds for construction of the Pentagon. And just to think that that was uh, uh, the end of August, and here in December of 1941, we're entering World War II. So we were, you know, it was kind of interesting how the Department of Defense is really being established and, and getting its own building at the time that we're just about to enter into the war. 1944, uh, Paris, France was liberated by Allied forces, ending four years of German occupation. And, of course, we know that many, many, many thousands of American lives were lost in the liberation of France, uh, something that caused a real tension between France and America is that after World War II, like in Germany to this day, we had air bases. And France decided that they wanted those air bases for themselves because we had developed these great uh, runways and they could you know, make their own uh, international airports and cargo airports, and so they kicked us out. And that caused us a lot of uh, strategic grief. Here we are defending them. We've liberated them twice. And uh, uh, so when we left, I don't know if you've ever heard the story, but it's kind of interesting. We went through and we destroyed those air bases. They were less usable than if they had just started from scratch. They took like concussion bombs and put them in the uh, runway and destroyed the runways. They poured concrete down into the uh, toilet system and they uh, fried all of the electric system. And uh, it was our way of saying this was ours. Here, now you can have it. So uh, good move on the part of America. The French have kind of always been a, a thorn in our side. I don't have anything against France, but uh, we wanted to bomb, uh, what was it, Libya back in the 80s. And they said, no, you can't fly over our airspace. So we had uh, uh, more stress on our pilots as we flew around the country instead of over it. Uh, we bombed Libya. And I don't know if you heard the story, but one bomb happened to uh, miss its target and it landed on the French embassy. Maybe that was a, a, a signal to the French that we didn't appreciate what happened. But uh, these are the kind of things that uh, go on between us and the French. And I've never quite understood it because, uh, you know, we've helped each other throughout the centuries, but there's always been a tension between us. Anyway, um, 1981, the U.S. Voyager 2 sent back pictures about and data about Saturn. The craft came within 63,000 miles of the planet and actually encountered the planet week, a week later. But uh, just last week, we're talking about the first pictures from the moon. And this week, uh, on this day in history, we're sending things back from Saturn. And we're continuing to go out further and further and explore more and more things. So uh, God has allowed us to study himself through the things he's created. And people see these beautiful pictures and the wisdom of how all these planets move and what's going on out there. And then they attribute it to things like an explosion or a random chance or chaos. Surely the wrath of God is upon the people of the world for rejecting the magnificence of what he has done and attributing it to something like an accident. But here we go. That was uh, 1981. And then in 1988, uh, something kind of, uh, you know, deals with something we talked about a second ago. Iran and Iraq began talks in Geneva after eight years of war. And if you know, that was a very bloody war. Uh, there was chemical weapons used, kind of like has happened in Syria in recent months. And um, if uh, you know the story of what the Iranians did in order to uh, clear the minefields, it's very sad. This is how the depraved mind thinks, is they took children and they gave them little plastic keys. And they said, this is your key to get to heaven. And then you say, if you go out there and run through this minefield and you get blown up, you will be able to get into heaven with this key. So imagine the price that those people are going to pay for doing those type of things when they have to face their creator. Just horrifying what happened during this war and what happens during most wars. I mean, uh, it, the depravity of man is just, it, it's unbelievable. But we uh, say things like men are inherently good and we elect leaders that uh, uh, claim social issues are the uh, par of paramount importance rather than uh, obeying God's word and 
this is the state of the world we in. I don't mean to be uh, negative or anything. It's just it's reality. And that's why I like this day in history is it reminds us where we have been and the things we have done because that which has been will be again and that which has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun according to the Bible. All of the things we've talked about will come again if the Lord doesn't come first. Anyway, here we go. We're going to get right into the sermon now. This is um, our third and final sermon from Genesis chapter 34. Um, today's sermon is entitled, The uh, Gentiles Who Are Turning to God. And it's Genesis 34, 25 through 31. It's seven verses. And before I read you these seven verses, I'd like you to think about once again, I mentioned this a couple sermons ago, the last place that we were at before this was in Shalem, a city of Shechem, which was a picture of the millennial reign of Christ the city of peace and Christ reigning there. There's no doubt that that is what was being pictured. There's just no doubt. And then uh, at the beginning of the next chapter, which is chapter 35, we are going to see what comes after the millennial reign of Christ. And if you know your book of Revelation this much, you know that there is very little coming after the millennial reign of Christ in the Bible. There's very little. It is something that is very, very specific that we're going to be looking at. If, in fact, this is the millennial reign of Christ and what we're going to look at next week is being pictured here, why would God take an entire chapter of his word and dedicate it to the rape of a young girl if he didn't think this was one of the most important issues that we will ever, ever, ever face as human beings as we pursue religion, either rightly or wrongly? That's how important these verses are. And you may not understand at all what I'm going to talk about today. But I would hope you do. I hope that my explanation is clear enough where you say, I will follow Christ and I will do nothing else. All right? That's how important I believe this chapter is and how absolutely essential it is that you understand that God put this here for this particular reason. Okay, we're going to read the text now. Genesis 34, starting in the 25th verse. It says, Now it came, it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi... Dinah's brothers each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, and they took captive. And they plundered even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, Should we treat our sister like a harlot? God chose Abraham, and through him he chose Isaac, and then Jacob. Jacob became Israel, and his family became the covenant people of God. However, throughout their history, Gentiles did join into this family and became a part of this unfolding story. Abraham was given directions for something called circumcision for anyone who would join into that family. But in due time, Christ came and fulfilled the law, which included circumcision, a rite which was pictured in his coming work and what he would do for us. And I want to read you something from the book of Colossians so that you can maybe understand what I'm going to uh, mention to you. It says, uh, this is verse 11 of chapter 2 of Colossians. It says, in him, meaning Jesus, uh, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, circumcision was pointing to the work of Christ. It was something that had an end in Christ. And that's what Paul is trying to tell us. Well, sin entered, and I explain this almost every week at the end of the service, but I'll give it to you now in case you've forgotten this. Sin entered through Adam. And all men are fallen, and all men receive Adam's sin through the Father. And that's why God gave the picture of circumcision, was to show the cutting away of the sin nature. He's going to cut it away at a, per, uh, a point in human history. So the male was circumcised. Sin doesn't come through the mother. All people are born of a father and therefore all inherit Adam's sins. Jesus came, he was not born of a father. And so he did not inherit his father's sin, but he was born of a woman and so he's fully man and he's fully God. He is the fulfillment of the picture of circumcision. That's the point that I'm trying to make to you so you understand that and grasp it. 
circumcision as a right is fulfilled in him. And this truth is seen in the story right here about Dinah. Although it's a tragic story, it's one which was included to show us of these pictures to come. Now, I hope what you hear today will help you to understand a little bit more fully the truth of the work of Jesus, that it is all sufficient for our salvation. Nothing else is needed and nothing else is to be added to it. Our text verse for today comes from the book of Galatians. Last week I said, please read uh, Galatians and Acts chapter 15, right from Galatians. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you have served those which by nature are not God's. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to weak and beggarly elements to which you desire to be again in bondage? Paul calls the elements of the law, and I'm talking about the law of Moses, he calls them beggarly elements and bondage. It's something that imprisons us. Is that what Christ came to do? To give us things which are unsound and things which imprison us? No, he came to free us from the law and its weakness. Our faith in him and in his work is all sufficient for us as we're going to see in the completion of today's story. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Got three thoughts for you today. The first is cursed be their anger. This is uh, verse 25. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. This is now the fourth time in the Bible that the term the third day is mentioned. It's a very common theme and it carries throughout the entire Bible right to the resurrection of Christ, which came, as the Bible tells us many times, on the third day. The third day is the day after a bodily trauma when inflammation is at its worst and often fever is set in on the third day. This past week right here, I had this finger had a splinter in it. And on the third day, it was so swollen, I thought it was going to pop. And it hurt so badly that I thought I was going to cry. Every morning I'd wake up, but the third day was really a bad day for me, and I couldn't get the thing out, and I had all this pus. That's the third day. It is at this time, the third day, that the sons of Leah and Jacob, making them whole brothers of Dinah, killed all of the males in the city. Remember, they were circumcised. They were in pain. This is the third day. These two are Simeon and Levi. At this point, they would have been about 17 to 20 years of age. They're at their prime of life, and they're at the point in life when males are their most violent. This deception and this violent outburst is going to have a lasting effect on their lives, and it will cost them favor with their father and the loss of the preeminent position in the family. And that's something for all of the youth, and we don't have any youth here today, but all of the youth need to understand that the choices we make when we're young can actually affect our entire life. And some of us know that right here. You know, we did things in our youth that we're still carrying those marks around with. Anyway, Reuben is the oldest son of Jacob, and he is going to lose his right to the preeminent position when he sleeps with his father, Bilhah. That's coming in a few more chapters. All right, Simeon and Levi are also going to be passed over for this honored status because of what they've done right here. Before his death, Jacob blessed the sons of Israel. And when he did, he pronounced these words over his son, Simeon and Levi. He said, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let my soul not enter their council. Let my honor not be united to their assembly. For in their anger, they slew a man and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. In fact, they were divided in Jacob, and they were scattered in Israel. Levi became the priestly tribe, and they never had a land inheritance as the other tribes did. They were literally dispersed in Israel among the tribes. Simeon likewise was allocated to live within the borders of Judah and they became scattered among the Judaites. They kind of disappeared as a uh, tribe. As a further testament to the sad consequences of their actions, Simeon is the only tribe who was not blessed by Moses when he blessed the tribes before his death. What they did, even if it was with the intent of protecting the name and the honor of Dinah, it's implicitly noted in the Bible as a cursed offense in one which lacks 
any honor at all. Verse 26, and they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword. Under the law, we read these words in Deuteronomy chapter 24. It says, their fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. Now, although what happened here was before the time of the law, the concept of what's morally right and wrong stands within the precept. Not only did they kill all the males of the land, but they killed Hamor, the father, for what Shechem did. We can make suppositions and we can make guesses about the nature of Hamor and how he dealt with what Shechem did. And we can make suppositions and guesses about what Shechem himself did or did not deserve. However, there was no trial, there was no leniency, and there was no granting of mercy apart from the things that we've seen right here. The actions of Simeon and Levi are highlighted as without approval through that, throughout this entire chapter. Neither Jacob nor God was consulted. There was lying and there was deception. And there was the intentional murder of innocent people in violation of God's ruling that was given all the way back at the time of uh, Noah after the flood. As a little side note to you, and as maybe a squiggle for your brain, if you like these type of things, the translation here, it says he, they killed with the edge of the sword. It comes from two words in Hebrew, lepi chareb. It means the mouth of the sword. With the exception of Young's literal translation of the Bible, which I really like, every other translation, even the most literal translations, failed to convey the concept of what the sword is as it's found in the Bible. It is a devouring instrument. The edge or the mouth of the sword is what steals away the souls of men, thus consuming it. The imagery which is found in the Hebrew language is outstanding. Verse 26 continues, and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. They took Dinah from Shechem's house. Now, do you remember what Dinah means, what it points to? Do you remember what Shechem means? Do you remember that Shechem thought that what he was doing was right? If you can piece those things together, then maybe you have an idea of what this story is detailing. God does not waste words, and he pulls snippets of true life out for his word so that it will show us an important truth or something that is coming in a picture. And this chapter is no different. Verse 27, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. Simeon and Levi did the killing, but now it says that the sons of Jacob joined in the aftermath. With all the people dead, they stripped the bodies bare. This was done because their sister had been defiled. The price of the passionate lusts of one man who fell in love with the object of his lust was very high. Verse 28, they took their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field. Now, what I want to do is take you back to last week's sermon, uh, verse 23, and the words of Hamor and Shechem that they spoke to the people of Shechem. Here's what they said. Will not their livestock, meaning Jacob's livestock, their property and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will dwell with us. The very thing that they bribed the townspeople with is the thing that this verse describes as having been taken from them after they were dealt, dead. Excuse me. Their agreement to the circumcision was a hypo, hypocritical profession for the sake of worldly advantage and the pleasing of their own prince. What has come upon them, although undeserved from the hands of man, is a just and appropriate retaliation from the hand of providence. Everything that they desired and everything that they lusted after from Jacob has become a prey to the house of Jacob from them. All right, verse 29, and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, they took captive and they plundered even all that was in the houses. All the wealth of the town is assimilated into the people and the family of Israel through this incident. The word here for wealth is the Hebrew word chalem. It indicates more than just possessions, but that which makes one powerful. This would include the gold and the jewels, but also things like weapons. All of this is now added into the wealth of Israel. Jacob was already a wealthy man on his own accord, but now he is even more so. Eventually, he's going to receive all the wealth of his father, Isaac, as well. And so when Jacob moves to Egypt in his later years, Although it only records the immediate family members, and what I'm talking about is if you know this, it records about 70 people that went down to Egypt. But 
that's not all that went along. Along with them will go all of the people and possessions that they've acquired, amazingly, and is often overlooked in our evaluation of the wars and of the captivities of the Old Testament. The people who are subdued by Israel often actually become a part of the people of Israel. What seems like a catastrophe, and which indeed it was, the killing of all of these people, is also a point of grace. The women and the children and their children after them will be assimilated into God's covenant people. Out of strife comes peace, and out of death actually comes salvation. It is a picture of God's election in a way. That's great stuff which is often overlooked. As a matter of fact, my hair is standing up just thinking about it for the 20th time this week. Our second thought today is cursed among the Gentiles. Verse 30, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. Jacob directs his anger and his disappointment at the two original perpetrators. It was those two who killed without cause, and it was they who deceived before doing so. Hamor uh, was deceived in the presence of his son, and his son was deceived in the presence of the father. And all of the people were deceived because of these two people. Jacob's words to these two people now will only be reinforced on his deathbed when he gives his final words to them, which I quoted to you just a moment ago. In this verse, he uses a term that says that he will stink like a bad odor to the Canaanites and the Perizzites. This can only lead to trouble, and it's been caused by these two sons. And what's troubling him is that because of the small numbers, the local residents, all the towns around them, may be able to come and overtake them and kill them. This is the very first time that Jacob has spoken in this entire chapter, and his words here are truly lacking faith. God has promised his protection, he's promised his continuance, but he's forgotten all of this. It may be that he believes God will abandon him because of what his sons have done. Whatever he's thinking, he is lacking any faith in the greater promises which were handed down from his father Abraham and his father Isaac, and it's also ignoring the promises that were given to him when he was back at Bethel, and then later when he came back from his journey and he was at Mahanaim, he was given promises once again. This is a picture of Israel being scattered among the nations, if you think about it from that perspective. Verse 31, our last verse of the chapter, but they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Now, in an attempt to justify what is unjustifiable, they introduced their defense. Well, if we hadn't acted, it would have been as if we had sold Dinah as a whore. Now, this mindset may have come from Shechem's offer of any size dowry for Dinah, but it would be even twisting that. He was offering a dowry for a wife, not a payment for a whore. And on top of that were the lies and the wholesale slaughter of those who weren't even involved in the incident. From the human perspective, the entire situation from both sides is reeked with wrongdoing. But now what we need to do is we need to step back and we need to look at this chapter as a whole and see why it is included at all. If it's not telling us a spiritual truth, then it's no different than a Shakespearean tragedy. There must be and there are truths for us to find if we will just simply look closely. And so we come to our third and final thought today, which is explaining the Dinah incident. This story is showing us about those who are willing to follow wrong avenues to be a part of God's kingdom. Several are noted, such as being circumcised or maybe trying to buy entrance into the kingdom, something which is offered without a cost. The actors need to be listed once again. The first is Dinah. Her name means vindicated. I've explained this many, many times. She is a picture of the resurrection found in Jesus Christ. She is the daughter of Leah, who pictures the law. Shechem comes from words which indicate wisdom and diligence of a person. His father, Hamor, means he ass. He's a male donkey, which is a beast of burden. It gets its name from its reddish color. Think of Adam being brought out of the reddish soil of the earth. He's a, a man that's created, and this is kind of what we're getting with Hamor right here. A donkey is an unclean animal, just as Gentiles are unclean to the Jews. They are from the group of people known as the Hivites. This name Hivite means villagers, and it also comes from a verb which means to prostrate oneself, as in worship. However, in the Hebrew, it bears an amazing resemblance to the name Eve. 
yes, Eve of Adam and Eve, that fame. It was Eve who was deceived in the Garden of Eden. It is the Hivites who are deceived in this chapter. The inclusion of their name is certainly tying these two concepts together. In the garden, the serpent deceived Eve, resulting in death. In this account, the two sons of Leah do the same. They deceive the Hivites, which results in death. The two sons are named by name. They're Simeon and Levi. Simeon means he who hears, and Levi means attached. In one way, this chapter's explanation is that it pictures rejecting the gospel for the sake of legalism. Dinah, picturing the resurrection, which is Christ's vindication in the spirit, goes out into the land. Shechem sees Dinah and he takes her. He falls in love with who she is and wants to be united to her in marriage. In order to woo her, it says he spoke to her heart. In other words, he intended to get her to love him after the fact, not before the act. This is the person who gets their faith out of order and suffers for it. Emotions are to be a result of commitment, just as faith is. It's not a basis for it. If we get this wrong, when the emotions change, there's no support for the commitment. This is the case with Shechem, and it is seen later in the Bible as well. This is the type of person who sets his emotions on salvation and tries to have a meaningful relationship based on that, but without correct knowledge concerning the matter. When this happens in a person, he invariably does things incorrectly to get what he wants. Shechem is a son of Hamor, who is a Hivite, a Gentile. He wants to be united to Dinah, and so the first thing he does is go to his father and to ask him to get her for him. He erred first by sleeping with her before proposing. He errs now by expecting someone else to make the relationship happen. This is the person who's confused about religion and thinks that it is something that is obtained through a family relationship, maybe, or through some type of deeds. This will lead others to following, follow, falling into the exact same pit. The sons of Jacob picture the people of Israel just as they have all along. It's important to remember here that this story actually happened and rape was involved. This is not, just like every story we've looked at, it's not a one-for-one -one comparison. It is showing us a panorama of a spiritual truth which is realized in Jesus Christ. The overall message that we're to see is that God is using the real story to show us this spiritual truth. We see several times in the New Testament that when the Jewish people hear that the Gentiles want to participate in this new life, which came through Jesus' work, they become upset. I told you a week ago to read Acts chapter 15 in the book of Galatians, and I said that it would help you understand what's going on here. Remember that in this entire account, right up until the very end, Jacob never speaks, nor is he consulted. Neither is God mentioned all the way through until the very end of the chapter. Shechem wants Dinah in the story. The Gentiles want to participate in Christ in the New Testament. The sons of Israel are upset about the Gentiles wanting what is theirs, their sister Dinah. Dinah is theirs to yield as they wish. In the same way, the Jews felt that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the vindication was theirs, that it was not meant for the Gentiles. This attitude is seen in Acts uh, chapter 10 when Peter went to Caesarea to speak to the household of Cornelius. If you know that story, here's what it says. This is after he went to the house and spoke to them, the Holy Spirit came down upon them. He went back and the Jewish people accused him. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Hamor, the father of Shechem, spoke on behalf of his son for Dinah. He offered peace between the two clans and a sharing of all the wealth. After this, Shechem offered a dowry of any size in order to get Dinah. And I got to tell you what, this is a marvelous picture of a man named Simon who was found in Acts chapter 8. If you've read that story, you'll know who I'm talking about. Here's what it says. And when Simon saw that through the laying on the apostles', the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered money. Now remember, Dinah is a picture of the Holy Spirit, the, the vindication of the Spirit found in the resurrection. So this guy is picturing that right now. It goes on to say, um, he offered them money saying, give me this power that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. 
But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Hamor and Shechem are trying to deal with the sons of Israel for Dinah when they should have dealt directly with Jacob. They are offering to buy her through dowry. In the same way, this guy Simon thought that he could buy the gift of the Spirit from Peter, a son of Israel, rather than going directly to the Lord. Are you seeing this parallel that's going on? Dinah pictures Christ's vindication in the Spirit. Shechem asked for grace in conjunction with the dowry, but the two are mutually exclusive. One cannot buy grace. After the offers came the deceit. Just as Eve was deceived, the Hivites will now be deceived. As it says, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor's father and spoke deceitfully. Their deception was that they said they wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised as they were. The pattern is seen in the New Testament in people we call Judaizers. They are those who demand that one must obey the law of Moses and be circumcised in order to be saved. Acts 15 verse 1, we read this. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They held up salvation as a carrot in order to deceive them. It is the misuse of the gift of grace in order to bring about the very bondage that they were freed from in the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the greed of religion rather than the gift of life. This isn't just a message for the first century only. There are groups to this day by the bullful who still teach this. There are many messianic groups that do so. There are many cults that do so and many subsects of Christianity that will tell you that you have to do these things. They add in legalism to the grace which is found in Jesus Christ apart from the law. I know, I'll tell you why I know. I encounter them almost daily. I have videos and posts. I got hundreds, maybe thousands of videos and posts on the internet and people come to me and they try to confuse the issue by reinserting the law where the law does not belong. They are deceivers and they are exactly who's being pictured here in this incident. They promise life and dwelling in harmony, but they only bring strife and death with them. And I have said this to you almost every sermon since I started preaching. I expect you to check Charlie Garrett as well, because maybe I'm one of these guys that's trying to deceive you into believing that which is incorrect. You are responsible for your walk with Jesus Christ. You are responsible to make right decisions and reasonably think through your faith before you go committing to something that somebody tells you that they say is true. The next thing that we see here is uh, Shechem. He went right out and got himself circumcised because he was, as the Bible says, more honorable than all the household of his father. He naively believed that he would get what he wanted. He thought he was pursuing Christ, but instead he was destined for death. And then after that, we saw Hamor and Shechem meeting with the townspeople at the gate of the city. The gate is the spot where legal matters and important business is transacted. They, having been deceived, now turn to deceive the rest of the people. At the gates of the city, the people were told, this is from last week's sermon, let us take their daughters to us as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. At the time I said, a person is never more unwilling to see the truth than when he follows someone who is already deceived. This is the cult mindset. This is religion without reason and faith without direction. It is trusting that which should never, never be trusted. Their deception came in the exact same way as Eve's deception came, by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh was seen in the mentioning of the daughters. The lust of the eyes was seen in Jacob's wealth. And the pride of life was seen in the boasting of the flesh. We will be a part of the circumcised people, and we will be a part of their covenant because of this. It caused Eve to fall, and it brought low the Hivites as well. They decided to be circumcised because they didn't check. Abraham's circumcision wasn't meant for them then, and it is not meant for us now. It was a particular sign for a particular reason, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
You can almost hear it though. See all of the great things, they're gonna be ours. All we need to do is just be circumcised. Such a small thing, right? Just think of all the great stuff that's gonna go along with it though. But Paul warns us against this in Galatians chapter six. Here's what he says. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, meaning circumcision, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. As you can see, both sides are wrong in what's hap what happens here. The sons of Israel are wrong in their deception, and the Hivites are wrong in not doing their due diligence. There's no record of them speaking to Jacob, nor is there a record of them asking God about this. They have followed, failed to follow the right blueprint, just as way too many people fail to follow the pattern which is set down in the pages of the Bible. They fail to seek Jesus personally. It is the standard operating procedure, as I said, of cults and of charismatic churches, of legalistic churches, and even entire societies get into this. Once the, de the deceit took root, the people partook of the forbidden fruit. And the record states, now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The third day is when Christ was resurrected. They thought that they would obtain Dinah, the vindication of the spirit, just as Jesus did. But instead, while Christ was being resurrected on the third day, they were going to their deaths. They inserted the law where the law was fulfilled. They had rejected Jesus Christ. As Paul writes in Romans, I was once alive without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Interestingly, Hamor is mentioned 10 times in this story, and his son, as I said, means he ass. It's a male donkey. He pictures the Gentiles. Under the law, the firstborn donkey was to be redeemed by a lamb, or it was to have its neck broken. It was the first for all that came afterward. Hamor, instead of being redeemed by the lamb, Jesus went off to his death and all followed after him. You see, every name that's given, especially one that's mentioned 10 times in a story like this, like Hamor, is given to show us the work of Christ and what will result if we accept his work or reject his work. Hamor rejected it and he received his just due. Once this slaughter was complete, the other sons of Israel joined in the plunder. The wives and the children who should have been united to Christ were stolen away from him. This is the state of countless women and children throughout the ages who have followed the head of their family, the male, into captivity. The man is the spiritual head of the family. When he gets misdirected, the family normally follows into the same trap of bondage. This is the sadness of not checking what one is told and not verifying the message that's given. Far too often it affects more than just one soul. After the plunder and after the spoil taking, Jacob, picturing Jesus, who has allowed man to make his own free will choices without any interference, speaks directly to Simeon and Levi, the perpetrators of the crimes. Unlike the other sons of Israel who are not even named by name in the chapter, both are named here and they're named not only once but twice. Simeon means he who hears. His name is given because of what he pictures. Paul writes about him in Romans chapter two. Listen to this. For as many have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Simeon, he who hears was just that, one who heard but did not do. And Levi, Levi means attached. The sons of Levi were the administrators of the law. They were attached to the law. Of all of the people who should have known the freedom from the law, which is found in Jesus Christ, it should have been them. But Levi pictures those who would impose the law on the people seeking grace. This is the reason why neither was given an inheritance in the land of Canaan, but instead they were dispersed in the land of Israel. 
It's the reason why Simeon also wasn't blessed by Moses before his death. They are a picture of those who even to this day attempt to reinsert the law where the law does not belong. You have no inheritance among me is basically what God would tell them. They picture works-based salvation, reintroducing the law, which can only lead to condemnation. And so to introduce works beyond the work of Christ is to say that the work of Christ isn't good enough. Guess what? I'm sending my son to the world. He's going to fulfill the law. I'm going to send him to the cross of Calvary to die for the sins of the people of the world. And you still have to do more. What he did isn't sufficient. That is exactly what that's saying right there. This is a repeated warning in the New Testament. Just as the people were killed with the sword, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 that the law brings the exact same effect on the people. It says, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, meaning the law, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. It could not be any clearer, and yet we muddy the water. Paul is adamant, and time and time again, he tells us the same thing. Here's what he says in the book of Galatians chapter 5. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again by a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Pay attention to Paul's words here. This is why this is such an absolutely important chapter in the pages of the Bible. This rebuke of Jacob to Simeon and Levi, right here, this is what we're being warned about. It is the dishonoring of God by imposing the law by those who in fact break the law that they are there imposing. Again, to Romans 2, you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. These are the things which are being pictured in this tragic story. It really did happen to Dinah. But God has used the details to show us what is even more tragic. Dinah was violated physically, but her life went on. Others were violated spiritually. And like the Hivites and the people of Shechem, they go off and die eternally. The outward right could never make these Hivites true Israelites, nor can it bring you any closer to Christ. Circumcision means nothing, nor does any other observance of the law, be it a Sabbath day. Think of the Seventh-day Adventists. They say you have to sit in church all day Saturday. You can't do this and you can't do that. They're doing this to themselves. And you try to show them this kind of stuff and they will not open their eyes. Or maybe how about abstaining from pork? People say, oh, you shouldn't be eating pork. Yeah, it may not be very good for you if you eat 20 pounds a day, but that is not the point. The point is that we are free from the constraints of the law. In Christ, the law is fulfilled. Without the reality of worshiping God in spirit and in truth, all our external rights, all of them mean diddly do. Don't let those who, under the pretense of meticulous scruples, lead you down a path of treachery which is as malicious and as diabolical as anything that could be perpetrated against you. Rest in Christ, trust in Christ, live for Christ, and be consumed in your thoughts, your life, and your actions for Christ. This is the place where heaven's rewards are to be found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Either his cross was sufficient, or I'm gonna tell you something. If it wasn't, we are all doomed, all of us. As Paul says, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Our walk is all about grace. The very last verse of the Bible, if nothing else should tell you this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I got to tell you what, if you've never understood this in its fullness, that you were saved by grace and grace alone, I'd ask for just another minute to explain the work of Jesus one more time so that you can grasp it and call on him if you've never done so. Jesus Christ came to undo what Adam did. I talked about that during the, the sermon. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. 
And because we've sinned, the Bible goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. We die because of that sin. And it's not just our physical death at the end of our life, which is a result of sin, but it's also spiritual death, eternal separation from God because of the sin in our lives. But the Bible goes on to say, but, that great, wonderful three-letter word, but, the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Savior, Jesus Christ. I misquoted that, but you get the point. We are saved through Jesus. God offered his son as a sacrifice of atonement to bring us back to himself. And by accepting the work of Jesus Christ and by no other thing can we be saved. And I'll tell you what, if you try to add to that, you cannot be saved. You must call on Jesus Christ as Lord, and that means that he is Lord. Not you doing your own way to heaven because then you're saying I'm the Lord or I'm part Lord or whatever. It is Jesus Christ as Lord. He is all sufficient. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And that's what God asks each and every one of us to do today is to make that commitment to Jesus Christ. Here's our closing verse for today. It comes from Ephesians chapter two. Wonderful words. For he himself, Jesus, he himself is our peace who has made both one. He's speaking of Jew and Gentile and has broken down the middle wall of separation. If you went into the ancient temple in Jerusalem, you'd see a wall there and it says any Gentile who goes beyond this point will be executed. We were not allowed to partake in the covenant promises of God, but through Christ, that middle wall of separation is gone, having abolished in his flesh, meaning his body, the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. That's what we've been speaking about through the whole sermon. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. You've got the Israelites and you've got the Hivites and there's this enmity and they don't want to be a part of, of they, they're not a part of us. Well, God has taken all of that away in Jesus Christ. We now have equal standing with God, just as his covenant people did for so many thousands of years. Wonderful stuff. I just can't get beyond the work of Jesus Christ. It is astonishing. Next week, we're going to look at Genesis 35, verses 1 through 8. This is entitled, Arise, Go Up to Beth El. If you know what that particular uh, title that I just gave you means, then you may know the, in the entire scope of the coming sermon. Arise, go up to Beth El. What comes after the millennial reign of Christ? Got to tell you what, wonderful stuff coming in our 87th sermon next week. Please make sure to uh, read and to study those verses before you come. Make sure you read them in Hebrew. And if you uh, refer to the New Testament, read them in Greek and uh, know where every word comes from and what its Strong's corresponding number is. So I might give you a quiz after the uh, sermon, okay? Okay, probably not. Anyway, I'll tell you this before we take our... Uh, uh, communion and have our poem today. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you and he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Here's our uh, poem today on these seven verses we looked at. It's called Dying by Law or Living in Christ. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob came their way, Simeon and Levi, their wrath they did not contain. Dinah's brothers each took his sword and came boldly upon the city. They killed all the males, the entire horde. They killed them all, showing no pity. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword in this brutal way, and took Dinah from Shechem's house when they were done, and went out on that very same day. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered there the entire city. Because their sister had been defiled, they took everything, showing no pity. They took the animals, every sheep, ox, and donkey, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth, their actions quite wonky, their wrongness, the wrongness of their ways could not be concealed. All their little ones and their wives they took captive and plundered all that was in the houses, really quite adaptive. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me to stink among the inhabitants of the land, yes, even I, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, they will hate me, I think. And since I am few in number, as you already know, they will gather together against me and kill me as their foe. I shall be destroyed, my household and I, we are at death's door. But they said, should he treat our sister like a whore? This story, though brutal and filled with deceit, contains a lesson to which we should pay heed. The work of Jesus is sufficient and complete, so to it we need not add any other deed. 
He has accomplished all for us. Nothing is left undone by our glorious Lord Jesus, God's own son. And so Lord, help us to trust in him and rest in him alone. Give us wisdom to pursue him all of our days and remind us that his shed blood does for our sin atone. And as we remember, we will give you all of our praise. Yes, Lord, all majesty and honor belong to you. And so we offer you our praises only to you are they due. Hallelujah and amen. Glorious Heavenly Father, thank you for getting us through this beautiful chapter, this sad story, this poor girl that actually went through a tough life lesson in order to teach us a tougher spiritual lesson. Help us always to just rest in the work of your Son and in Him alone. Help us not to add anything to it and thus condemn ourselves, but to just receive the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we'll be sure to give you all the honor and praise that you're due. And when we fail to do that, please forgive us of our negligence. You are worthy of infinite glory, infinite honor, infinite praise. And so we direct it to you through the name of your Son, our Lord, our beautiful Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.